So congratulations for another full day of practice. And uh, we're in the heart of the retreat. And tonight I want to speak about the Dharma of identity. This is uh, an area that I have a lot of passion for and interest. So I'll start with um, a reading from Lewis Carroll from Alice, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. The caterpillar and Alice looked at each other for some time in silence, and at last the caterpillar took the hookah out of its mouth and addressed her in a languid and sleepy voice. Who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for conversation. Alice replied rather shyly, I, I, I hardly know, sir. Just at present, at least I knew who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have been changed several times since then. What do you mean by that, said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. I, I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm not myself, you see. I'm not myself, you see. That's from Alice in Wonderland. So these teachings of identity, to me, is probably the most revolutionary teaching within the Buddhist teachings. It is first introduced in the second teaching that the Buddha taught. It's called the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the uh, teachings of the selfless nature of things. And this was uh, preceded by the first Dharma talk that the Buddha ever offered called the Dhamma Chaka Bhavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of Dharma. And I explained part of that um, the other night with those realizations that he had sitting underneath the tree of awakening, the realization of the heartbreaking qualities that can happen in life and its causes, namely ignorance and craving due to misconceptions, and that there is a way to lessen suffering by lessening ignorance and craving, and the fourth is the noble path to walk upon the development of living with integrity or virtue, developing the mind and steadying it in concentration, culminating in wisdom, understanding. In this teaching of the Anattalakana Sutta that I want to go into tonight, it's speaking about three marks of existence. And um, the marks are that within life there is this heartbreaking quality to it. Suffering, dis-ease, stress. The second aspect is that there is impermanence. But actually I discovered that there actually is one thing that's permanent, and that is impermanence. <laughs> so, aha, the Buddha was wrong. There is one thing that's permanent, that's impermanence. <laughs> but maybe he wasn't so wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And the third is this selfless nature of things. And it's interesting to say that uh, at the end of the first teaching of the turning of the wheel of Dharma, one of, and he taught this to these five ascetics that were um, practicing the self-mortification. And when the Buddha was enlightened, he thought about, well, who could really understand this? And so he thought of these five ascetics. And so he turned to, after quite some time sitting underneath the tree of awakening, he decided to go see these five ascetics and to share with them what he had learned. And, you know, at first it said that they kind of like turned away. They didn't want to have anything to do with him because they thought that he became a wimp because he, he broke his self-mortification practices. But then as he walked closer, there was like, they all kind of turned like, well, what's going on? This, this, this is a different feel here. And, um, and so they became his students, and at the end of his teaching of the Dhammachakabhavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheels of Dharma, Kodanya, who was one of the ascetics, entered into the stream of awakening. Kodanya was the, um, when Siddhartha was born and the father had invited these five, like, wise people to come and take a look at the signs, the ears, the nose, the legs, and all these things. And Kodanya was the one that predicted he will become a Buddha. And it turned out many, many years later, he was this wandering ascetic practicing self-mortification. So it's kind of interesting connection there. And so he, Kodanya actually became, entered into the stream of awakening. And it is said that after the Buddha taught the second discourse of the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the Sutta of the, non, the selfless nature of things, the three marks of existence, Kodanya reached full enlightenment. And the kind of the Sutta ends with, now there is one enlightened being besides the Buddha in the world. And the other four entered into the stream. I always kind of like those closing the loops there. And Kodanya became known, he had a nickname called Anatta Kodanya. So he penetrated his awakening through this understanding of the selfless nature of things. So traditionally, the three marks are translated as suffering or the heartbreaking aspects of life or suffering, as I mentioned, or impermanence, the transient nature of things and the selfless nature of things. And I love to the, uh, the more contemporarily speaking, John Kabat-Zinn has a wonderful um, recontextualization of these three marks where he says for suffering, he says simply in his New York tough slang, shit happens. And then he says, uh, for impermanence, because things change. And for the selfless nature of things, he says, don't take it so personally. So I, I love this kind of everyday language, not taking it personally. Shit happens. Things change. In the Dharma, <clears throat> there is teachings about ultimate reality and conventional reality. And... My teacher, Tampulu Seto, he was very fond of giving a lot of teachings in this area. 
And these teachings come from what's known as the Abhidharma, or the, the psychological teachings found within the canonical literature within Buddhism. And within the Abhidharma, they speak about that there's four ultimate realities. There's mind and mental factors, there's materiality, and then there's Nibbana. So in Burmese Pali, the Seattle would always be chanting back and forth, Sait Siddhate Yo Neban Paramata Deya Leba. Sait Siddhate Yo Neban Paramata Deya Leba. Sait Siddhate Yo Paramata Deya Leba. And so I, this is kind of like this reframe that kind of was embedded inside me from so many years ago and these teachings that in the ultimate reality of things, there's mind and its mental factors, there's the materiality of the body, and there is awakening. So there's the teachings within the Abhidharma speak about an ultimate or an absolute reality and a conventional reality. Or we could say the world of concept and form and ultimate reality. So for example, as a concept, we call this Insight Retreat Center. We have an agreement. You call me Bob. This is Mary, and you're you. So from the Dhamma point of view, these, these are conceptual um, things, but they actually only exist in name. Like, where is Insight Retreat Center? Well, we can say it's a collection of this gong, this water bottle, this, 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 that, and somehow putting all together, we have this collective conceptual agreement. We call this the Insight Retreat Center from a conceptual point of view. But from an ultimate point of view, where is the Insight Retreat Center? Where is it? Where is it? What's here is this this solids, there's liquids, there's motion, there's temperature. The human being, you, you call this Bob, you call this Mary, you call this, these are all concepts. But actually, what, what's here? There's a mental process, there's a material process. That's all that's here. Kind of a very interesting thing. Reality, these material phenomena is made up of solids, liquids, motion, temperature. There's a mental process and a material process in this form, materiality. But where is the Bob to be found? Is it in the, from the Dharma point of view, is it found in the head hair, the body hair, the nails, the teeth, the skin? If it's found in the head here, well, what happened to Bob's head here? It's gone now. So this body is appearing and disappearing. So the sense of conceptualizing that this is Bob is really like, which Bob are you talking about? The body makes a new stomach lining every five days. It makes a new liver every six weeks. It replaces new head hair every two to five months, except for me and some other folks. The body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body grows a new skin once a month. Month. The body replaces a new skeleton every seven years. I love this one. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced by new cells 
all while you hear me read this sentence. It's all that's happening in that sentence. Radioactive isotype studies show that the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So, in other words, at any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they're atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the same as it was yesterday. So where is this Bob? You know, conceptually, yes, we have an agreement. I'm Bob. I got a driver's license, a passport. That's the passport that says that too. But actually, if we take away all the concepts and names and forms that we put on that, what, what do we actually find? We find there's a faculty of awareness. There's a physicality. There's mind. There's the mental factors. So perhaps as Ron Siegel, um, David, Dan Siegel says, perhaps uh, as a human being, we're not a singular noun, but a noun. We're not a singular noun, but perhaps more like a plural verb. I like that. The teachings of non-self or the selfless nature of things, as I mentioned, is one of the most radical or provocative teachings in the Dharma, and it can rub up against our sense of status, role, culture, ethnicity, our egocentricity, our narcissism. And of course, the sense of self is one of the hallmarks of our Western civilization. Of course, uh, the philosopher Descartes declares many years ago, I think, therefore I am. It's kind of like putting that flag down. I think, therefore I am. But where is this I am? Where is the self to be found? You know, and it's funny, modern science is, is verifying that actually even the idea that we're human being is in some ways a misconception because we're actually a human biome where we're about 10% human and 90% microorganisms. And it's interesting that even in the ancient teachings of the Dharma, there was some awareness of that found within the path of purification of the Vasudhimaga. There's, there's a whole teaching that's called Living with the Many. <laughs> I love that as a title, Living with the Many. And my teacher, Tempe Lucero, he <laughs> many years ago, he decided to give us all a teaching for 81 straight nights of the 81 different families of organisms that live in the body. Every night, he would go through saying, well, these are the ones that live in the eyes, the ones that live in the nose, one lives in the ears, one lives in the scalp. I mean, like 81 different places and orifices everywhere in the body. These, these, or, these organisms live. And then he always ended each Dharma talk with a refrain that he wanted us to memorize in Burmese. So I can still remember most of it from, you know, this is now 30 plus years ago, 40 years ago. But it's po aim posa. And what that means is that these organisms live in your body and they have to eat. They get hungry, so they eat of the body. And then because they eat, they have digestive tracts, they urinate and they defecate in the body. And then they're interested in partnering, so they get couples and they copulate and they make babies. And then gradually they get old and then they die. And thus your body is a cemetery. 
And then we would go on the next night to the next group. <laughs> There's like this 85-year-old monk, like, who, who is this guy? So that was the refrain, those little poetic thing of, uh, about the body. You know, and actually it said, and now we're getting back into modern science, that within one square inch of human skin lives 32 million bacteria. Just get a sense of how many microorganisms are here to support this body to live. And the Buddha reasoned in the Anatta Lakana Sutta that if there was a self, there could be some sense, some type of control that self could say, all right, I've, I've come to maturity and I'm going to just stay at this age. I'm not going to get sick. I'm not going to die. There's a, so there's a kind of a rationale, like I, there's not much control here. We can't control this. My hair came out. My prostate gland got bigger. I did not have a communication with a texting saying, please get bigger and block my urinary tract. It did it, did it by itself. Didn't even ask me. <laughs> I had a synovial fluid in my back that was strangulating my sciatic nerve. I, I didn't ask that synovial fluid cyst to come. It, it just came. So there's a sense of this, this um, uninv- these things, how the body's just doing its thing. And there's not that sense of control. And these practices, like when you hear all this, it can get very confusing because, wait a minute, I, I, I am me. Like, you know, and, you know, I think one of the most liberating and scariest questions we could ask ourselves is, who am I without my story? But perhaps it is, uh, it's pointing towards liberation. But it can be unsettling, kind of turning things upside down. remember once doing a teaching on the parts of the body and non-self, and a friend of mine, a psychiatrist, had uh, taken this, this practice with me, and um, later I got an email from him, and he was thanking me for the day, but then he also said, you know, it was a really disabusive experience. And when I, the word disabu- when I saw the word disabusive, well, to be very honest, I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> But I got scared. Am I abusing my psychiatrist friend? I mean, I kind of went to that. So I looked it up in the dictionary, and actually disabusive is a beautiful word. And, and, and it's kind of like this practice. It's like turning things upside down. What I thought to be this was that. And, and so this is, there can be like the disorienting dilemma. And they, they use that in education, in process of learning. Like there's a certain time, a disorienting dilemma that begins then to come into some type of ripening and understanding. So we may all at some sense, the sense of self and non-self, like this is kind of disorienting. Like, who am I? So that's normal. But to me, um, my understanding of this non-self to me is, is not mysterious. And it can sometimes sound mysterious, like an enigma, like what is this non-self thing? And so um, I think that we that there's some pointing to this as far as helping it to be understandable in a very powerful 
were the words of the Buddha supposedly um, what he said. You may never know fully for sure. Um, but the, this is called the lion's roar and it's upon the Buddha's awakening. And it's also very poetic and very beautiful. And he says, through many a birth, I've wandered in samsara, seeking but not finding the builder of the house. Sorrowful it is to be born again and again. O house builder, thou art seen. Thou, thy shaft will build no house again. All the rafters are broken. The ridge, the ridge pole is shattered. My mind has attained the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving and ignorance. And I, I really, I really touched with these words. And I, I love when he says that my mind has attained the unconditioned because if it attained the unconditioned, then there has to be a reference point of a condition. How can you know the unconditioned without a condition? And to me, what this means is that, that the Buddha in his awakening began to see through the conditioning that was fueling suffering. And to see through this conditioning, see through these identifications fueled by craving, by ignorance, by hatred, and so forth, to begin to see through these was his great liberation. seeing through the stories, the narratives, the conditions that have enslaved us. You know, when you think about it, many, many years ago, we were born, um, and you know, and prior to that birth, we were connected with, with our mother with, through the umbilical cord, and you know, there came a time where we got too big and we had to go out. And again, coming from that place of union and connection and then that cord being cut. And it's like, all right, now here we are with that cord being cut and, and then beginning to develop our sense of self, our personality. And of course, this personality is formed by our experiences, those that are close to us, the environment, some would even speculate that perhaps even in utero that there's an organism relating to its environment that there's beginning certain tendencies. And of course, the Dharma might say that there's actually past lives, that some scars that begin to have influence. But one thing for sure, whether you uh, think that's possible or not, we are here now and we do have this personality that we have. And, um, and that came... Whether is it affected by something prior, maybe we don't know that for sure, but what we do know for sure is that our, we, we were, from very early age, we were shaped with our experience, with those around us, our environment, our education. And this personality begins to develop, develop patterns, enduring patterns of thoughts and feelings and behaviors. And these begin to distinguish between one individual and another. And it's wonderful to know that actually in personality theory that we, though shaped by our experience, that it is possible that we can change if we become more aware. And that, that actually is good news, that we can grow, we can adapt, we can change. 
And of course, perhaps one of the greatest allies is mindfulness, is awareness itself. I always like to joke around that it took a certain amount of years for us to individuate. And of course, now we've seen this individuation and perhaps the rest of our life is unindividuating who we've individuated into. It's kind of a tongue twister. Margaret Wheatley, I, I love what she says. She's a practitioner. She says, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created and we self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. So when we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal. We can notice something new. So that's very important, this sense of um, moving from self-referencing to self-awareness. And it's difficult for us to even... I think it's actually historic in our, within our own practice to realize that perhaps what I have identified with as me may not be all of me. That's actually incredibly historic because there's many that don't even know that, that they have a self because they just are themselves. It's kind of like, you know, Popeye. I'm Popeye the say I am what I am. I'm Popeye the sailor man. And never quite looked any other way to see if he's maybe... Uh, Someone else. I am what I am because that's the way I am. I'm Popeye the sailor man. And we live that life from birth to our death. And perhaps with this practice, we begin to recognize these stories that we're telling ourselves that we've identified with and perhaps begin to see and experience that this not all of me. Some of these stories are really so powerful. I've been working with a young man, Daniel, he's 25 years old. He took his life a few weeks ago. I really cared about him a lot. And, you know, yeah, I have a lot of grief with this. And, you know, and he, you know, as much, I, you know, I cared for him, but he could not, it was just not possible for him to, understand that this also was a story that he had so deeply identified with it and he couldn't help himself and felt that life was not worth living. It's the, our, this is how powerful our identities can be. We literally can kill ourselves. We kill each other. And these stories can be profound woundings. Some of us may have very deep core beliefs that I'm not lovable, that I'm not okay. Some years ago, Jen and I worked with a, a person that her mother used to say to her all the time, I wish I never had you. It's quite a thing to say. And she felt she didn't feel worthy, even alive. 
was during this retreat, and, and um, she had a, a, a beginning of, of another possibility. She began to realize in her professional career she had been a certified nurse midwife and had worked and helped give birth to probably like a thousand or more babies. And it began to dawn her on her, well, maybe I'm all right. <laughs> but it's amazing. And, you know, and I'll hear in, 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 you know, right, right in our practice discussions, like these deep, deep, wounded core beliefs that I'm damaged goods. I am not enough. And these woundings happen when we're so young and so impressionable, we don't even know we're being wounded. It's only off until much later. And the shame arises, the fear arises, the sense of unworthiness arises. I'm sure every one of us here could probably sit and tell stories of different wounds that we've identified with and believe them to be the total truth. This, we're really up against something big because I can even hear, even with the practitioners, well, I know that this is a story, but I really do believe it. I really do believe it. But our practice is questioning us to question that belief. And to me, when the Buddha experienced the unconditioned, I, to me, what makes it, he see through all of those stories, all of those narratives awakened. That's why we say he awakened. So I feel like in our spiritual practice, these woundings or these identifications that we have, they cannot be overlaid with some type of spiritual concept or psychological bypass. These are the things that, to me, need to work on if I really want to be free. There's no bypassing our personality. So in some ways, it's very interesting about this practice. It's incredibly personal because we get to be here and to sit with our personal stuff. And it's also incredibly impersonal. And these are both happening. It's very interesting. And you're not alone, as I mentioned the other day, and Mary mentioned it yesterday, uh, there's two types of people, those with issues and those who have died. So we, we, all, we all got them. But how do we meet them and begin to work with them? This is the, the key. If we want to become free. That's why there's actually a Mahayana saying, and I really love it. It says, like, to know samsara, that's the world of becoming. To know the person, to know the samsara is to know nibbana. And to know nibbana is to know samsara. We, in other words, we can't bypass our personality, but by seeing these identities and seeing through them, we can experience more freedom than we ever could have ever possibly imagined. As I mentioned, though, these stories are so powerful. We're reading about them in the papers all the time, what's happening in the world. You know, we develop these stories, these identities, we make rules. There's the sense with these identifications that there becomes an us and a them. We call this othering. There's someone else, us and them. 
This othering creates a sense of separation, isolation, disconnection, deep pain. This is why I think that it's so important for us to begin to investigate deeply our identity. What are the lenses of how I am seeing this world that create the sense of othering and separation, you, me? For thousands of years, we've lived with these misconceptions of self and we've killed one another, suppressed one another, oppressed one another. This is why, again, to me, the, the, the teachings of identity are so incredibly important for our own individual potentiality and freedom, and perhaps even collectively in this world. Because how we see things is so important, because if we see through the lens of our bias, our separation, our feelings of superiority, because deep down we're feeling inferior and so forth, it creates this world of suffering. And you probably know that, at least within the Western Dharma world, there's a lot of sincere looking at our bias, our privilege. And to me, it, this is indeed connected to the Dharma, because again, it's connected to our identity, it's connected to how we see ourselves with the us and the them, how much pain because of our connection with identity and our misconnection with identity that we've killed so many people with different color. And yet, you know, the science behind pigmentation is those that lived actually closer to the sun, their skin actually got darker, and those that lived further north got lighter. There's science behind it. And yet, because of these lenses of misconception, these lenses of identity, we separate. We separate and cause bias and separation with skin color, with sexual orientation, with gender identity, with those that have abilities, those with physical disabilities, those with psychological disabilities, etc., 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 political affiliations, etc., 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 through these lenses of identification that separates us. This is to me why the teachings of the Dharma on identity are so incredibly important because it's helping us to see perhaps some of the um, bias that we might have that we don't even see. I'm a white male with a lot of white privilege. And because of that, I get to potentially go have a little bit of an edge on getting an, an education and healthcare and jockeying for jobs often because of this gender and because of the color of this skin and some collective hysteria that somehow this is all right and another person with another color is not all right. This is the basic qualities of what we call ethnocentrism in sociology. It's like wherever you are, that it's the center of the world and everyone else is barbarians. And so it's a Dharma issue to begin to, like these eyes and how I'm seeing you and seeing me and how we're seeing things is so important for, for our own welfare and that of the world. Otherwise, this, this unawareness and these filtering, it has perpetuated for thousands of years. It will continue to perpetuate. Privilege will continue to happen colonization, dominance will continue to happen. All of this impression is based on ignorance, on unawareness. It feeds our cultural conditioning, our patriarchic 
patriarch culture and paradigm. Again, that perpetuates the sense of othering, privilege. So from the Dharma point of view, these are all just constructions, fabrications, concepts. Say sedate yoneban paramata deya leba. There's mind, there's mental factors, there's materiality, and there's nibbana. But due to these misconceptions, the world arises. How do we find our place in the world and navigate it wisely and skillfully? Because otherwise these, un, these misunderstandings will continue to create these divisions and separations. The Buddha was a great rebel. And in ancient India, there was the caste system and he was, his teaching was a great rebellion against the caste tradition. It was believed that those born in the Brahmin caste, that they, were, they had privilege. They were entitled. They were the closest to the divine. The untouchables were the furthest away. And the Buddha in the teachings was saying that purification is not created by what birth you're born into, what family you're born into, but by the purification of your mind and heart. The lessening of greed and hatred and ignorance, the increasing of contentment, open-heartedness, wisdom, clarity. It's sad to say that the caste system still exists today, not only in India, but really if we look around the world, the caste systems are, are everywhere. Jen and I were in Brazil last, uh, some months ago, and we had a young man translator. I just love him. His name is Marcos. And Marcos uh, comes from a black descent. And one day we were talking and I was asking him about his family. And he said, we don't know. Um, his family was brought over in slaves. They took away his family name his culture, he doesn't know his past. Imagine that. This is happening over the world. That's why perhaps the Buddha says sometimes in Pali, that all worldly beings, when filled with these misconception identities, are deranged. Yet I don't want to paint such a terrible picture because I also feel that there's hope. But I want to name, yes, it is messed up due to these identities and the way we separate and kill one another, disrespect one another, not honoring our cultures and everything. But our hope is awareness and love. Our hope is development of our mind. Our hope is just to see more clearly through these filters that we have you know, developed through our years of conditioning. And I'm, I don't want to like blame all the different environmental or people around me that created the conditioning that I'm in. Again, I want to, like, I, 
that I am the hero of my own karma, and can I begin to take responsibility personally with my own filtering and to begin to see more clearly where I separate? And this is a, perhaps a, a thing that we all can do, and is to begin to take a responsibility of, of like being curious about these filters of how I see the world. This is why, you know, in so many ways, I love traveling. And, you know, no doubt I, I love at times seeing the sights, and of course I love being with the people and really hearing deeply what's happening in the heart. But what I also really love is that whenever I travel, it's always like taking apart what I think the world should be like because people do things differently. So I'm constantly getting like, oh, Oh, you know, and I'm in Australia, you know, and I'm, I'm walking, I'm driving the car on the wrong side of the street. No, no, you have to go on this side. And I mean, it's just, no matter where you go, there's different cultural nuances. And so it, it breaks that sense of ethnocentrism. It breaks that sense of thinking, this is how the world is. It's very humbling, very sobering. So this internal commitment for I want to invite for each of us to really look deeply at how we see things and the ideas that we have and the rules that we make. It's got to be this, it's got to be that. To begin to question, who is this I, me, and my? Ay, ay, ay. But perhaps that's why, as I mentioned the other night with uh, my Zen teacher, Bishop Nipo Seako, when he would say, Bob, you are just the most stupidest person I've ever met in my entire life. Because he already knew I was fully enlightened, but I didn't know it. But perhaps that's what it is as we get lighter and bring in the light of awareness. We can begin to see through some of these stories that we have so deeply identified with. And to begin to experience more freedom. And in this process, may we hold ourselves very tenderly. It's not like when we awaken that we turn into this non-self enigma of mental material forces and not know how to communicate, but it informs how we are relationally in the world with how do we be wiser? How do we be kinder? How do we begin to lessen some of the egocentricity and narcissism that separates us, born out of our deep fears, born out of our insecurities. That we can begin to experience the heart of wisdom and compassion with more spaciousness, 
more luminosity, more kindness, more heartfulness. Some people said, well, if I, if I get enlightened, then who would I be? And it's kind of threatening, kind of scary. But I love in the definition of the arahant, which is the enlightened being, it, it means a couple of aspects, and one is the destroyer of the enemies, and that is the, des the destruction of greed, hatred, and ignorance that exists within our five senses and our mind. But there's also an added aspect to that. Not only is there the lessening and the destruction of greed, hatred, and ignorance, but there actually is the, the, the increase, if you will, or the added of what is the opposite of greed is contentment. And I'll tell you, money cannot buy contentment. Contentment is like the greatest of wealth. You know, just take an inhalation and exhalation. What would it be like in this moment to like, let yourself experience contentment? And in that moment, all the wanting and the not wanting just falls away instantly. And in that knowing is wisdom. Understand suffering and its causes, which is unawareness, grasping, aversion, and its end. So right here, like we get a moment to taste. What is it like to taste for a moment contentment that we don't need anything? Nothing to push away, nothing to add on. That our hearts are open, benevolent. The opposite of hatred, benevolence, kindness. The opposite of ignorance is understanding causes of suffering, the path to peace. So just for a few moments, just, just sit with ourselves, a little hors d'oeuvre of enlightenment, breathing in and breathing out. Could I actually just allow myself to invite in contentment that we don't need anything else? The heart's open, it's kind. The mind heart is with wisdom. It understands where it gets caught and it's free now with contentment and the open heart. And so may all beings discover the gateways into the heart to see things more clearly. May all beings dwell with peace.